<clears throat> Father, we're, we're truly grateful for those who gave their lives that we might enjoy the freedoms, the liberty that we enjoy as a country and much around the, the world. There are many nations that, because of the lives that were lost, also experienced freedom. And Lord, we just want to say that we're grateful. We remember them. We do pray your hand of comfort and mercy upon all those family members and loved ones who've lost uh, those loved ones. Lord, we also today want to remember those who put themselves in harm's way, not just in our military, but those who put themselves in harm's way in our first responders, our healthcare workers. We ask your hand to be upon them. And we pray, Lord, you would speed up the day that we'd be able to, the church would be able to fully function around the world, Lord, without any any restriction or any uh, encumbrance. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in the countryside of England, there stands an ancient church. Around the walls of that church, there's an inscribed memorial. And it reads as follows. It says this, In the year 1653, when all things sacred were throughout the nation either demolished or profaned, Sir Robert Shirley did found this church, whose singular praise it is to have done the best of things in the worst of times. You know, Memorial Day, Memorial Weekend, really is a time of honoring those who have done the best of things in the worst of times. Over one million lives were willingly sacrificed, their blood shed, so we can experience the freedom that we experience as a nation. And those who paid that price, price must not be forgotten. As we saw in the video, we're reminded what Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, than to lay down your life for a friend. And that being true, that means that what we're remembering on this weekend really is the greatest love a human can give, and that is giving their life for another. And it's so easy, and I think particularly with the younger generation, uh, to have to take these, this, these freedoms that we have for granted, to live with all the benefits of the freedoms that we have and not realize that the high cost that was paid in order for those freedoms to be experienced. And it's so important that we need to not just remember, but really be grateful and cherish those freedoms. You know, many of you know that I grew up as the son of an Air Force fighter pilot. Patriotism isn't a new thing for me. It was very powerful in our family, everywhere we went. I grew up on Air Force bases. I went to Air Force base schools. In fact, I remember during, as a first grader during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we learned to get underneath our desk and, and to uh, kind of hold ourselves in a certain position in case we were bombed during that time. After that, I grew up uh, traveling. We spent seven years stationed in Air Force bases in Europe where my father and his squadron uh, flew constantly along the Iron Curtain uh, during the Cold War. By the way, I don't know if you knew that, know this, but during the Cold War, there was always a squadron of fighter, fighter planes on, on, along the Iron Curtain 24-7. And oftentimes, my father and his squadron were part of that. And I got, to, I got to be around that growing up. And since growing up, I traveled many countries around the world. I've seen 
uh, communism and how ugly it is when people do not have freedom. I've seen personally I've seen how tyranny and oppression have impacted people in all its forms. I've personally ministered and to refugees from several different countries and heard them actually say on several occasions how fortunate we are to have experienced the freedoms that we experience. And I remember what Abraham Lincoln said that really captures so well how I have felt in my lifetime. And that's what, here's what he says. He says this, Abraham Lincoln, and I quote, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause from which they gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain and that this nation under God and this government of the people and by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. You know, we can't ever let their sacrifice be in vain. Our freedom was purchased at a great price. And in gratitude for that, we should not only take time to remember that, but we should live in a manner worthy of such a price paid. And that means not taking it for granted, cherishing it, and then living and working to preserve it. In fact, I wish every one of you and everyone you online could have been with me one summer in 1976. As a college student, I was home for the summer, and my father had a couple of his fighter pilot buddies who were POWs, prisoners of war, had been shot down, had actually come over to the house to talk with him and see him after they got out of prison. They sat around after they had a few drinks. They began to tell stories of their, of how they were treated by their captors. And then he began to reminisce of the ones, the comrades that they lost. And it marked me. I mean, I will never forget that. That was a moment that really changed my life in many ways. And I would, I would, be, I would uh, have to say that these were men, I believe, who did some of the best of things in the worst of times. Well, this morning, really, I want to shift gears because I want to talk about another time in history where there were a group of people who did the best of things in the worst of times. And I want to go back about 2,500 years now in history. It was when Cyrus the Great of Persia, he overthrew the Babylonian Empire. It was 539 B.C. And then he, Cyrus, and subsequent kings of this new Medo-Persian dynasty began to release the Jewish people from their 70-year exile in Babylon and in waves allowed them to go back to Israel, the land of Israel. So the Hebrews returned to Palestine, and when they did, they only found that the fact that their country had been left in ruins. The physical infrastructure of their nation had crumbled, the economy had totally withered, and their religious life that they knew was dead. So you have to say it was the worst of times when they returned to the land. Now, what did they do? Did they rise to the challenge of doing the best of things? Well, actually, they did. The first returnees, led by Zerubbabel, first they languished at first, but then they kind of jump-started a recovery, and they began rebuilding 
the temple and rebuilding the religious rhythms of the nation. And then the prophet Zechariah and the prophet Haggai helped fuel a spiritual revival took place and the temple was completed in 515 B.C. And then in 458 B.C., another group of Jews returned to Palestine, this time under the leadership of Ezra, the priest. Now, unfortunately, by this time, the Jews had intermarried with pagan people, and they lost their spiritual center once again. So Ezra, what does he do? He leads another revival and gets recovery back on track, and it's going great for a while again, but then soon it stalls out once again. And finally, in 444 B.C., the Persian king, at that time Artaxerxes, released his Jewish chief of staff, Nehemiah, to return to the homeland and to, once again, rebuild the nation. And when Nehemiah returns, he finds, once again, the country in shambles. Once again, it's the worst of times. But Nehemiah then leads this massive task force from the Persian capital city of Susa, 900 miles all the way back to Jerusalem. And he finds this once renowned, powerful, amazing capital city of David and Solomon. He finds it in devastation and chaos. But what he does is he, in the space of 52 days, Nehemiah manages to lead the people in a rebuilding of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem back to their former strength. And in the process of doing that, he doesn't just rebuild the walls of the city, but he sets up an administrative structure among the people that then leads to a restoration of the country politically and economically and religiously. And once again, Israel is restored into a worshiping people of the one true God. Now, to put it another way, in the year 444 B.C., when all things were sacred throughout the nation, were demolished and profaned, Nehemiah refound, in a sense, Jerusalem, whose singular praise is to have done the best of things in the worst of times. And that's what we want to look at this morning, this rebuilding project and how he went about it. Because we, in a sense, are facing a bit of a rebuilding time ourselves. And we want to see what biblical principles we see in, in rebuilding. How do we go about our rebuilding project? How does the church around the world go about rebuilding? Now, we saw last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 1, and we saw the first thing that Nehemiah does is he fasts and prays. And that's what we did. We, spent, we had an 18-hour fasting and prayer meeting last Tuesday. Many of you participated. Many of you that are, are home today were there as well. And it was an, an important time, I think a powerful time. And there's some things I want to share next Sunday about what I believe some of the things the Lord was saying during that prayer meeting. But what happens next? Nehemiah knew he had to start with prayer and continue in prayer, and we know the same thing. We started with prayer, we will continue with prayer. But what happens next? I want you to notice how Nehemiah ends his prayer. Let's look at it. Nehemiah 1, verse 11. He says, O Lord, I beseech you, make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man, before the king of Persia. So he ends his prayer by asking God for help. 
asking God to grant him the favor he's going to need before the king of Persia to get his assistance and the nation of Persia's assistance in the rebuilding project. By the way, if you're praying for help, as Nehemiah prayed for help, then you should, we should all expect an answer. He expected an answer. And he, when the an answer came, he was ready for it. And so as we're praying, we need to be think, we need to be expecting God to answer. And we need to be as ready as we can be for the answer when it comes. Well, let's see what happens next for Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So he says it came about in the month of Nisan. That's approximately for us the month of April. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, when he first heard the news and began to pray and fast, it was the month of Shislev, which for us is basically the month of December. So four months have passed since he first started to fast and pray and began to involve other people in praying. Four months of praying and waiting, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month. You know, and he sensed then it was time to step out after that and trust God that God was going to help him. And we're going to see in a moment that God, of course, does. Well, it's been about three months of praying and waiting for many of us during this pandemic. And we're sensing from God that it's time to step out and trust him that he's going to help us. Now, I want you to notice we're about to see that Nehemiah stepped out knowing that he was taking a risk. What risk was Nehemiah taking when he stepped out? I want you to remember that he said he had never been sad before the king. He had never been sad, but now he was sad. Let's read verse 2, Nehemiah 2, 2. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. See, he was purposely, he purposely showed himself, his true state of his heart before the king. He showed his sadness before the king. And when he did that, he did it at great risk. Why was it a great risk to do that? Because he was the king's most trusted servant. And if he wasn't happy around the king, then that could give the king reason to think that maybe he's disgruntled. Maybe he's not loyal anymore. Maybe he won't really stand in loyalty for the king and stand against any assassination attempts. So if the cupbearer of the king isn't happy, that means the cupbearer of the king can't be trusted and the cupbearer of the king must go. But the cupbearer of the king's heard too much to just go away. So the cupbearer of the king must be killed. That's why he was very much afraid. He took a risk. He knowingly took a risk when he showed himself to be sad before the king. This risk could have cost him his life. But he's willing to take this risk. Why? Because there was a crisis, a crisis that something had to be done. And he's willing to take a risk in the midst of a crisis. Now, for us to begin to meet again this coming Sunday, 
begin to call people back, everyone who feels comfortable coming back, those who have health concerns, can continue to worship with us online. But when we begin to come back together as a church, there is going to be some risk. In fact, every time you leave your house, you take a risk. Every time you go to the store, you take a risk. We found out a lot of people in New York that got sick never even left their house. So we're surrounded by risk. And there's going to be risk involved when we regather. And we cannot totally eliminate that risk. We will do our best to be as safe as we can be. But there will still be risk. But we believe that the mission of the church is so important, so crucial. We cannot continue long-term around the world for the church to function this way. And so we, really, we believe that it's time to take this, this risk, do our best to make it safe, but to get back on mission in every way we can. Now, I understand there's a lot of different perspectives about how to handle the risk. There's a lot of different perspectives about how much risk there is. And there's a lot of different approaches people have been taking. In fact, I want to show you some photos of some different approaches that people have been taking. Show that first one, if you would. First slide. <laughs> this woman here is taking no risk, whether herself or her dog. Next slide. This woman is improvising with all that she had available to her. But her, she's definitely committed to, you know, minimizing her risk. And by the way, she's not doing this to be funny. She's taking what she had to do this. Next slide. This person is about to get on a subway, and they take social distancing very seriously, and they want to make sure no one gets too close. Next slide. Here's someone that's not taking it seriously. He loves his car. He doesn't want it to be sick. Next slide. Obviously, he's trying to be silly, funny. The antivirus DVD will not protect him from virus. Next slide. This is the coffee filter. Again, I just want, I'm pointing out that some people take this very seriously. They're doing everything they can. Some people, this is a big joke, too. And I want you to know that, that we got the whole spectrum of views. Next slide. This is a person who takes his health seriously but doesn't take his health seriously. <laughs> okay, my point is simply this, so that I understand, I understand, and our leadership understands, that with, even within our own church family, we have all kinds of different perspectives about what's going on and how to handle it. And I, I'm I want to be respectful to, to those who have different opinions about this. What I want us to understand is, as a church, we are going to do our best to make it as safe as possible. So if you are concerned about the safety, we're doing all we can do, you know, reasonably to make it safe. And those of you that may roll your eyes at what we're doing, understand that, that we're trying to be safe for everybody, and that includes our brothers and sisters who are vulnerable. But there is a crisis that demands that something be done. And the church must look for ways that we can continue the mission hitting on all eight cylinders. We've continued the mission, even with our different situation. We haven't stopped the mission. But obviously, it's hard to hit on all eight cylinders with what we've been dealing with.
And our goal is to get back there. Well, Nehemiah had resolved that the time was right to speak to the king. So after four months of praying and fasting at different times, he then, verse 3, And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And the king said, what is your request? The king's heart is in favor already. What is your request? God had worked in the king's heart during all that prayer time. What is your request? And Nehemiah was ready. He was ready with an entire plan. By the way, if we're believing God for an answer, then we need to be ready to move on the answers he's given us. So during that time of prayer, Nehemiah is thoughtfully and prayerfully thinking about, okay, Lord, what is your strategy? What do you want us to do? And we're doing the same. What is your strategy, Lord? What do you want us to do? See, he believed that God was going to come through, so he was ready. He was ready with a plan for rebuilding. Verse 5, Nehemiah 2, 5. And I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. And the king is in agreement with this. It's an amazing thing that's happening here. The king is in agreement and gives Nehemiah the resources and the provision and the help and the guard and what he's going to need for this rebuilding project. So now I want, you to, I want us to now note the steps he's about to take. Because these steps that we see Nehemiah take under the leadership of the Lord, are steps that we need to really pay attention to in these days that we're in. Nehemiah 2, verse 11. Nehemiah says, So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. And I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal which I was riding so I went out at night. So he's on horseback. And what is he doing? He's inspecting the walls. What is he doing? He's assessing the situation. What is he doing? He's gathering facts. He's gathering all of the facts. And by the way, that leads us to the next important step after praying and continuing to pray. The next important step for us and for all the church really around the world is get the facts. Get the facts about what we're dealing with. Now, without the facts, we're not going to be able to make a good decision. Now, in our present situation, that's been quite a challenge because it seems that the facts keep changing. In fact, some of you have seen this humorous video about the kind of facts we've been getting and continuing to get, uh, which makes it so difficult because we're not getting consistent information uh, about what are the facts. And in fact, I want you to go ahead and show that video. I think you guys will get a kick out of those of you who haven't seen it. Let's watch this. Yeah, I really don't understand why everybody isn't following the same rules right now. They're very clear. So let's take a minute and let's go over them again. First, you must not leave the house for any reason, unless, of course, you have a reason, and then you may leave the house. All stores are closed except those that are open. And all stores must close unless, of course, they need to stay open. This virus is deadly, but don't be afraid of it. 
It can only kill people who are vulnerable and also those who are not vulnerable. We should stay locked down until the virus stops infecting people. And it will only stop infecting people if enough of us get infected that we build immunity. So it is very important that we get infected and also do not get infected. You should not go to the doctor's office or the hospital unless you have to go there unless of course you are too sick to go there. This virus has no effect on children except for those children in which it affects. The virus remains active on different surfaces for two hours or four hours or six hours, but in most cases it's days and not hours and it needs a damp environment or a cold environment that is warm and dry in the air unless the air is plastic. Schools are closed, so you need to homeschool your children unless you can send them to school because you are not home. If you are at home, you can school your children using various portals and online classrooms unless you have poor internet, more than one child, only one computer, or you are working from home. Baking cakes can be considered math, science, or art. If you are home educating, you can include household chores within their education curriculum. And if you are home educating, you may start drinking at approximately 10 a.m. every day. If you are not home educating children, you may also start drinking at approximately 10 a.m. Masks are useless at protecting you against the virus but you still need to wear one because it can save lives. And in some cases it may even be mandatory, but also maybe not. You must not go to work, but you can get another job at which point you may go to work. Stay home. I don't know how many more celebrities we need to have tell you how important it is to go outside and take care of your mental health. There is no shortage of groceries in the supermarket. There are simply many things missing. You don't need to go buy a bunch of toilet paper, but you should buy some in case you need it. If you are sick, you may go out once you are better, but those in your household, they cannot go out once you are better, unless of course they need to go out. Animals are not affected by the virus, except for that cat that tested positive in Belgium in February, plus a couple tigers. The number of corona-related deaths will be announced daily, but we don't know how many people are infected because we were only testing those who are almost dead to determine if that's what they will die of. The people who die of corona who are not counted won't or will be counted, but maybe not. To help protect yourself during these times, you should be eating well and exercising, but exercising only eating what you have at home to avoid going to the stores unless you need toilet paper or a fence panel. It's important to get fresh air but don't go to parks, but do go walk in other places. Just don't sit down unless you are old or pregnant. But if you do sit down, don't sit for too long, unless you are old and you are pregnant, in which case you need to sit down. But if you do sit down, don't eat, unless you've had a long walk, which you are allowed to do if you are old or pregnant, except for times in which you aren't. Don't visit old people but you have a moral obligation to take care of old people and bring them food and medicine. And finally, no businesses will go down due to coronavirus except those businesses that go down due to COVID-19. I hope this cleared up any questions about what we should and should not be doing during this time. Please educate your friends and family with this information so we can remove any and all confusion surrounding this time. Thank you. Yeah, I really don't understand why everybody isn't following the same. <laughs> Well, we need to get the facts. <laughs> we really are going to try to do our best to get the best information to function on as, as we move forward in our present situation. The protocols for safety as they do change, of course, we will be adjusting as well as, as we can as the information comes forward. All right, let's see the next thing that uh, Nehemiah does. Verse 15, so I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had 
I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burn with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. So Nehemiah says, you see the trouble we're in? So he tells the people, Jerusalem's in ruins, its gates are burned with fire, the people are in distress. And what does he do? He begins to now lay out a vision of a preferred future. He talks about the situation they're in, and he lays out a vision of a preferred future. And that leads us really to the second thing we see Nehemiah do, is he helps the people see the vision, to see the preferable future, to see what can be done. You know, Proverbs 29, verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people, uh, King James says, the, king, the people perish or the people are unrestrained. People are not going to be motivated to work if they don't see the vision of a preferred future, of what it can be. And so what Nehemiah does is he lays out a vision of what can happen here for the people to be motivated. You know, probably one of the most visionary people in American history was Walt Disney. You know, he, had, he made these groundbreaking movies. He took animation to levels that we never knew. Of course, he created Disneyland in California and a humongous Disney World just outside of Orlando, Florida. It occupies some 47 square miles. That's the size of San Francisco there. But Walt Disney died before the opening of Disney World. And at the grand opening of Disney World, one man said, I wish Walt was here to see this. And Walt Disney's wife said, he did. He did see it. See, he saw a preferred future, and his goal was to work toward it. Well, Nehemiah sees the condition of the walls, the condition of the people, but he sees a preferred future. He sees what it could look like if we all work together, what we can make this. He sees a preferred future of security, of restored purpose, and of meaning, and he begins to cast that vision before the people. Now, how do the people respond to that? Look at verse 18. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to do the good work. What is our, what is our present situation? What is our preferred future right now? Well, our present situation is simply this. We cannot effectively, really effectively, the church around the world fulfill their great commission in lockdown. And so we really do, we've got to begin to cast this vision of, of how can we be safe and careful, but at the same time, how can we begin to creatively look at ways that we can still be about fulfilling the great commission? I just want to remind everybody, we're going to live, all of us that know Christ, we're going to live forever. We're all going to live forever. And right now, we have a mission to do. The mission has not stopped. And we got to keep trying to figure out how do we continue to do the mission of Christ no matter how, what happens with the circumstances. So there is risk. And I'll say this, after this present risk passes, there will be another risk. And after that risk passes, I guarantee you there will be another risk. And so we got to keep looking for ways. Okay, take the risk seriously, but think, okay, now 
How do we do the mission in our present circumstances? Keep coming back to that. Even though there is a risk, we'll do our best to be safe, but we have got to follow this mission and do it uh, for the glory of Christ. So that leads us really to the third thing we see Nehemiah and the people do, and they, is that they get to work. So here it is. After praying, fasting, continue to pray. Number one, get the facts. We're going to continue to watch that and pay attention to that. Number two, see the vision. We have a preferred future here. We want the church hitting all eight cylinders on mission here and around the world. See the vision. Number three, do the work. Nehemiah 2.18 then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to do the good work. And there's much work to do. What we're going to do is we're going to continue to roll things out slowly and carefully, but deliberately. We're going to be deliberate about it. In fact, next Sunday, again, you know, I think everyone's heard it many times, but I want to say it again. Next Sunday, we're meeting at 9 and 11. What we've done in our worship center, we've taken every other row out. There's going to be separation of two seats between family units and we also have overflow in our gymnasium. The service will be, if, you, if for some reason you're not in this room, you can be right here on our campus still, and there will be separation there as well. We will be rolling out our children's ministry, Adventureland, in July because there's several things we want to get in place before we do that for safety and for precaution. But we are being deliberate about this. We are, we are, we are moving forward in this. What is the next thing we see Nehemiah do? Well, the next thing that happens to Nehemiah and the people, guess what? Is they run into resistance. Imagine that. Resistance. Nehemiah runs into the same problem that Ezra ran into, and that is he found out that in Jerusalem there's enemies. Nehemiah 2.19. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? But this does not intimidate Nehemiah in the least. Verse 20, so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. I think it's probably been probably some time since those who've been living in Jerusalem saw somebody stand up to these mockers, like Nehemiah just did. Probably it's a long time before someone also identified them as we, the people of God, with the faith and confidence that God will help us, and also identify them as having the right to Jerusalem. But they heard Nehemiah make the claim, and I think his courage encouraged them. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Even in the midst of this resistance, these mockers, Let's do it. And so that leads us really, I think, to the uh, fourth thing that we learn from Nehemiah, and that is stay the course. Resistance is going to come. Stay the course. So we get the facts. We see the vision of a preferred future. We do the work. We get back a mission on all eight cylinders, and we stay the course expecting resistance. Expect it. It will come. It will come. And they stayed the course. They stayed the course for 52 days stretch. And by the way, it proved to be harder than any of them expected it to be or anticipated it to be. But they stayed the course. 
I believe that the days that are coming are going to be hard. I think they're going to be challenging for us. I think we're going to face resistance. I think sometimes we're going to feel like we're taking three steps forward and two steps back. I'm expecting that. But we will persevere, and we will succeed with God's help. We'll persevere, and we'll succeed. There will be mockers and scoffers about the church. I think we'll see that. We're going to see that in the news in all kinds of ways. There will be resistance, demonic resistance. And we're not surprised by that. We expect it. But we will stay the course. God is with us. Amen? Let me close with this thought. There was this guy. One evening, he was driving down a country road, and he lost control of his car, and his car goes into a ditch. And he can't get it out, so he goes to the closest farmhouse, knocks on the door, and asks for help. Well, the farmer said, sure, I'll be glad to help you. Let me hitch up my old mule, Dusty, and we'll be right over, and we'll pull that car out in just a few moments. And so the farmer came out with this old, sway-backed, almost blind mule, named Dusty. And he hitches Dusty up to the car that's in the ditch. And then a farmer cracks their whip and he said, and he cries out loudly, pull, Clyde, pull. But, you know, the person with the, who owned the car looked around, didn't see on the mule, but Dusty thought, Clyde, what's that all about? And Dusty doesn't move. Then the farmer cracks the whip and says, pull, Buck, pull. And the guy looks around and doesn't see any other mule but Dusty, and Dusty's not moving. And then finally, the farmer cracks the whip and says, pull, Dusty, pull. And Dusty pulls that car right out of the ditch. And so the man was so grateful, and he walked up to the farmer and said, I'm so grateful for what you just did for me, but I'm curious. Your mule's name is Dusty, but you said, first of all, pull Clyde and then pull Buck, and that doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you do that? And the farmer said, well, you know, Dusty's an old mule and doesn't see too good and he doesn't have too much confidence. Why, if he thought he had to do all the work by himself, he'd never even try. <laughs> well, my point is simply this. None of you is going to have to do this work by yourself and none of you is alone. We have God with us and we are all in this together. Amen? It may be said that in the year 2020 in Arlington, Texas, when all things sacred were either demolished or profaned, that there were people at Grace Community Church that did the best of things in the worst of times. Let's stand for prayer. Father, our confidence is in you. Lord, you have called us out as a people for a very special time, for a very special mission. And Lord, we are trusting you to guide us each step of the way. We trust in you to give us the strength. We trust you for the protection. Lord, we follow your word as it gives us wisdom on how to be careful. But also, Lord, we know that this mission is not optional. And so we trust you to lead us in these days to come. 
And we ask you, O oh Lord, that you would take us not just back to normal, but you'd take us further than we've ever gone before. And Lord, we, take, we pray that for us as a, as a part of your church. We pray for that for the church around the world. And Lord, this, these days to come would be the church's greatest hour. That we would see, Lord, you move with great power and might through the nations and speed things up that we might behold your coming, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, let me just ask you to stay standing where you are because I, we want to kind of take a pass at ways that we can dismiss without all of a sudden all crowding together. So Jonathan is going to just lead you through that real briefly. And so bear with us. Be patient as we walk through this. John? Man, do you guys appreciate this man? I tell you, I've been uh, in this church for 20 years, and uh, it's been really an honor to get to serve with elders like Gary. So I appreciate your teaching, your wisdom through this time. And yeah, so as Gary said, we are trying to do this in as safe a manner as possible. I do want to remind you, um, if you just had some questions as you were listening to that sermon, you've had just some questions in general, Sunday night, 7 p.m., right here and online on Facebook. Gary is doing live Q&A. So you can give him a question ahead of time, or you can give it to him live and see how he does. But he's amazing on his feet. He's seen a lot of life, has a lot of great answers. So I've been enjoying hearing his questions. So if you have some tonight, tune in at 7 p.m. We'd love to have you. Um, the way uh, we're going to do this is we actually, you guys might not know this, we have another church service that happens in here at 1. Our Spanish church happens in here. And so before you came in, if you smelled any smell in the air, that was all the cleaning that we did of all the chairs, all the doorknobs, everything before you got here. We're going to do that again. Again, after we leave, so it's ready for the next service. Next week, we're going to do it after both services. So I just appreciate Rosie and her team being ready to clean and do that for us. If you want to help, contact Rosie. She will add you to her team as we all do this. So the way we're going to do this, uh, Dawn is over here. I'm going to ask uh, Elder Carrie to come over here. And what we're going to do is we're going to release the front row first. As you guys leave, we're going to stay a Gary away from each other. And as you go down these aisles, out the back doors, you're not going to stop in the foyer because we have a tiny foyer at Grace. So I want you to keep on going right out those front doors, down the steps. You can do all your conversations out the steps. So we're just going to release one row at a time. Go ahead, Carrie. Start releasing rows over here. And when uh, Don or Carrie point at you, you can go and stay a Gary away as you go down. And we're going to have all those conversations outside. And I do hope it, you guys all come back next week. We are doing everything we can to mitigate the risk. But it has been so good to worship with you this morning. And I'm looking forward to worshiping with more next Sunday. So you're dismissed when Don or Carrie lets you go. If you're online, have a blessed week.